If you have not been here for the last several weeks and you're like, okay, wait a minute, they're doing an, uh, a series in Exodus, like where are we? I'm going to give you some context for where this passage is this evening. Uh, and then we're just going to hop straight in. Uh, the, the hope for tonight is this is not going to take very long. I'd like to go back in and, and just take some time and worship here at the end. So tonight I want to talk to you about this God statement. God is unwavering. Everyone say unwavering. This is such a fascinating word. As we were preparing for this series, me and Pastor Mateo, we were sitting down and we were looking through Exodus. And this is kind of usually how it goes with an Exodus series. Like there's all this kind of like fun content that you get in like the first kind of 20 chapters of Exodus. You know, we have, we have kind of the story of Moses and then him leaving and then him coming back. And we have the 10 plagues in Egypt and then God delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt. And all of a sudden they're in the wilderness. We have the splitting of the Red Sea, kind of all of this stuff. We're watching God provide manna from heaven. And then you get to like chapters like 25 through 40. And it's kind of like, we're talking about like, the, like the, the measurements for the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle. And, and we're kind of talking about the law. And it's, it starts to get like, if, you're, if you've ever tried to do like the Bible reading plan, this is most of the time where like people start to kind of drift off in their, their Bible reading plan. It's like, I don't really care about like how long and tall and wide and how it needs to be wrapped with gold. But this is a very interesting moment that we have in the book of Exodus that we're gonna close out here with because we have at this moment, God has brought the people of Israel to Mount Sinai and he's giving them the law. He's creating a covenant with them. And this is what we talked about two weeks ago, the giving of the 10 commandments. But as you continue to read, God proceeds to give about 52 other commandments that have to do with social issues or livelihood issues or, 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 or community or ethnic issues. And then all of a sudden, that these people, they're eager to make this covenant with God. Then you get to chapters 32 to 34 and the people have already broken their covenant with God. So you have Moses up on the mountain. He's receiving the law from the Lord. And meanwhile, God's looking down at Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And they looked at Aaron and said, hey, you should build us a golden calf. And we should, we should have a God that we can go ahead and, and worship kind of in this meantime. Moses might be dead for all we know. We haven't seen him in over a month. So Aaron fashions this calf. And what we see here is that the anger of the Lord is like kindled against Israel. God's about to wipe the nation of Israel out. And Moses begins to intercede for his nation. And he says, Lord, don't do it. He said, remember the covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and remember your name and your reputation that's at stake with these people. And so God gives mercy. And this is where we're gonna find ourselves in Exodus 34. But I want you to look at the, oh, we're not gonna go there yet. Can we go back to the God statement? God is unwavering. What I wanna suggest to you when we read this text and as we finish the book of Exodus, that we're gonna see this attribute of God come out. Now it's really interesting when you look at like the, the Webster's, Merriam-Webster's dictionary for this word. If you go to Cambridge University, their definition for this word, the idea for unwavering is that it is constant. It is unchanging. It is consistent. It does not grow weaker. It maintains its strength. And I think this is what we see in God and his side of the covenant when we get to this place in the book of Exodus. So that being said, Exodus 34, we're just gonna read a couple verses tonight. We're gonna do verse five, six, and seven. It says this, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, him being Moses there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord and the Lord passed 
before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means, everyone say no means, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to which all God's people said. Let's pray. God, we love you. We welcome your presence here this evening. God, I thank you for every man and every woman who is in this room tonight. That you see them, you know them, you love them. And God, I thank you that in your own way, in your own personal way, you are pursuing every single person who's in this room tonight. You know us by name. You know our lives, our stories. You know everything that's public and you know everything that's hidden. You know our thoughts. You formed our inmost being. And you are about the business of redeeming your people. So God, I pray that you would help us hear good news this evening. You'd help us hear good news. You'd refresh our relationships with you this evening. You would begin relationships with you for the first time this evening. Lord, that you would open up our eyes and you'd open up our ears and you'd open up our minds and you'd open up our hearts simply to receive. All we need to do is receive. God, we thank you that you're, you're the initiator and we're the responders. Even as we come to the end of this book, we're reminded that we initiated no covenant with you, but you chose to with us. We had no ability to initiate any relationship with you, but you chose to with us. And so, Father, I pray that you would yet again reveal yourself to us and you'd show us the good news that we have in you. Show us how you are unwavering. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And if you're with me tonight, can you say amen? Amen. God is unwavering. There's just a couple kind of pastoral thoughts that I want to break down in this statement tonight. And then I want to end this evening simply with giving thanks. God is unwavering. What does it mean for God to be unwavering? First thing that I want you to catch when you read this text is that God being unwavering means that God does not change. God does not change. This is what I want, I want you to pay attention to. God does not change, but the way that we relate to him as his people changes. Are you with me? 
The way that we relate to him as his people changes. Let me do the best I can to illustrate this. Last night, my wife and I, we, uh, we went out on a date, which is like very rare these days now that we have become parents. And so Haven hits five months and two days. Um, yeah, that girl is hefty. She's, she is strong and she is gaining weight. Um, but we called my mother-in-law and we said, hey, would you be able to come and stop by and, and hang out with Haven for a couple hours, put her to bed while we go out on a date. And so Mariah and I, we do this thing where each one of us every other week plans the date. So the other, the other person doesn't know what's coming and one person plans it. And so last night, Mariah decided to plan the date. And so I, my mother-in-law gets there, we hop in the car and we get on the highway and I'm like, where are we going? And she goes, we're going to the Broadmoor. I was like, did you save money for this date? Or <laughs> she's like, no, 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 we're not gonna do it. eat at a nice restaurant. We're gonna go to the bowling alley there and, and, and have some dinner. I was like, oh, okay. The bowling alley is still expensive at the Broadmoor. So <laughs> we show up and we sit down and we're having a wonderful dinner and it's, it's, we're having a great time. And Mariah, she shows up prepared to this date. She shows up prepared with three questions that she wanted to ask me. And she said, here's what I wanted to do. She's like, I wanted to get a letter that I wrote to you back when we were dating. And I wanted to read it this evening. So I'm like, oh man, we're getting deep tonight. So we're sitting there, we're sitting there at the table and she pulls out this letter that she wrote to me back in 2013, nine years ago. And I remember this, I was just about to take off to school. I was about to leave. So she pulls out this two page handwritten letter that she wrote me and she begins to read. And we we're like, we're both like sitting there and we're both sitting quiet as she's like kind of slowly reading through this. And we're both kind of beginning to like laugh and chuckle at like, the way she was wording things in this letter. It was like, like her language was like so sweet and it was so affectionate. And it was like, it was, you know, it's like when you're like, you're like fresh dating somebody and it's like, they can do no wrong, right? Like you're just so fascinated with each other. And it's like, it's like you, we're gonna be in love for forever and we're gonna do this alongside one another. And I believe in you, da, da, da. And she's like reading these words and I'm like sitting across the table, like chuckling. And so she, she finishes reading the letter. We pay the bill and we go out and we, we begin to walk around like the little Broadmoor Lake thing that they have there. And so we begin walking and I look at her and I go, sweetheart, what did you feel? Like, what did you feel when you read that letter? And she like stops and she's like, she's like, wow, that's a good question. She's like, what? She's like, I felt like we were so innocent. She's like, there was like nothing that either of us could do wrong. And we were so in love with each other and, and we just so badly wanted to be together. And no way I'm saying this, you're like, wow, do you guys even love each other anymore? <laughs> <laughs> but there was something, she, so she turns, she, I promise you, I still love my wife. You'll get that here in a second. But she turns back and she looks at me and she's like, she's like well, what did you feel when I read the letter? <laughs> And I'm like sitting there and I'm like, that's a great question, sweetheart. And I was like, I was like, I mean, to be honest, it's like, man, some of those statements like just genuinely don't feel like reality anymore. It just feels like too much life has happened to us. And she like sat there and she was like, she gets like really like sensitive and emotional. She's like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, she's like, but we, we still love each other, right? <laughs> I 
And I'm like, well, I hope so. Do you, do you still love me? <laughs> but this is fascinating to me. And, and when I got home last night and we, I got in bed, I, I began to think upon, upon it more. And here's the thing. Bear with me for a second. As a youth pastor, just as a pastor in general, I have the opportunity to sit across the table a lot from a lot of different people and from a lot of people who are followers of Jesus. And if there's anything that I've seen become a common pattern, sitting with students, sitting with parents, sitting with friends, is that we tend to view God predominantly like on this paradigm in the Christian church, one of two ways. There might be like a, uh, an extreme to where some people, the way they perceive God, the way, the way they see God is like, God is eager to deal wrath and judgment upon them. And the way they begin to relate with God is, is that of fear, right? And so all of a sudden it's like, it's like yeah, like we can, you can know the Christian message. You, can, you might even be able to say you know the gospel, but at the end of the day, you also are very aware of your own brokenness. You're very aware of your own sin. You're aware of your own frailty. And so no matter how well you can preach to others that God's grace is sufficient for them and that God loves them and he wants to lay down his life for them and he cares for their life, that's something that's hard for you to receive or experience yourself, right? And so there's, there's this kind of like picture that God is up there and yeah, like he's gracious, but like we get to this moment in Exodus and you're like, yeah, I see the God who's like wrath and anger is kindled and he's frustrated. And, and I know that he's like eager to save me, but at the end of the day, like, he doesn't care that much or he's just ready to deal wrath and punishment. Then if you go to the other end of the paradigm, you might have people who think that God's forgiveness is like pretty cheap and God's grace is pretty cheap. In other words, they live their lives as if like I'm shoe in, God's grace requires nothing of me. I'll just live my life the way that I wanna live my life and he'll just continue to forgive me and that is what it is. And you, 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 you've kind of swapped definitions for God's grace for the word apathy. And all of a sudden it's like your relationship with God is apathetic. In other words, your love for him and his love for you doesn't transform your life. You're just living your life. And usually they fall between these two paradigms. And, and here's the thing. When we talk about relationships with God, like I, I think oftentimes we can swing into one, one or two paradigms or wait, it could be that we think that our relationship with God, similar to Mariah and I's relationship or when, you, when you're dating somebody, it's like, it's all well, it's all good. Like, like they can do no wrong. And then all of a sudden you, you realize they're human. All of a sudden you realize that they fall short. All of a sudden you realize that this person who you really, really love has the ability to hurt you really, really badly. And, and so this is what happens. Your relationship with God started in love. It started with excitement. It started wide-eyed. It, it started as if like, hey, there can be no wrong. And now you've been following Jesus for a while and, and all of a sudden you realize you're still a broken human being. And the picture that you feel God has with you is like that of a couple who's been married for a while and all of a sudden like the fire's gone, right? It's like, it was good with you at first, but now God can't stand you. It was good with, with God at first when you gave your life to him, maybe at Despo conference or, or at retreat, but now, 
Now that he's really seen your brokenness, but now that he's seen, he's seen you like respond to him, but you're like still weak. You're still fragile. You're still broken. He wants nothing to do with you. You've gotten old. And that might be one way we kind of look at God. The other way might be like, oh, well, now that I got a ring on it, working on the relationship doesn't matter anymore. Now that I'm saved, now that, now that I've received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, the relationship no longer requires any work. The relationship no longer requires any intimacy. And there's these two paradigms. And what I wanna say to you in light of that reality, whether you're on this end of that paradigm or this end of that paradigm, God being unwavering means he does not change. It means that the way God has approached his relationship with you has not changed. God's affection and desire to walk with you, to care for you, to know you, to transform you has not changed. God doesn't go up and down in his care and his affection and his love for his people. And this, brothers and sisters, is good news. This is good news because that means that God's relationship towards you isn't dependent on your behavior or your circumstances. He makes it rooted in and of himself. And we see it obviously in Israel, in Exodus, where all of a sudden in this moment, they've already made a decision to break covenant with him. And yet he makes clear to Moses, look, I am merciful and gracious. I'm abounding in love. I care. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. But he doesn't end there. God being unwavering also means that he is perfectly just. I want you to catch this. I want you to see this, this, this verse here. Let's go ahead and put this up, verse seven. It says that he being God, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In other words, God making the choice that despite your brokenness, despite your humanity, despite your sin, despite the hidden you, despite the thoughts that are dark in you, despite the things that are so far in you from him, despite your transgression, despite your iniquity, despite your sin, he will by no means clear the guilty. So you think all of a sudden, like it's gonna be like hopeful, like he'll be like, and he forgives but he says he won't clear the guilty. Now, if we stop here, it goes, oh man, this puts all of us in big trouble, right? Because every single person in this room, whether you wanna admit it or not, you're sinful, you're broken, you're a transgressor, you have iniquity. And so all of a sudden he's like, he's like no, 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 I, I'm not gonna overlook it. Now, here's, here's another way to, to kind of illustrate this. When Mariah and I got married, we were in for a major news flash. And we thought we knew each other like really, really well. We met when she was nine, I was 12. I was in junior high, she was in elementary school. Her brother was my best friend. I grew up calling her parents, mom and dad. That's like how close we were growing up. When we got married, we were like, we, man, we, like, we, we feel like man, we're so far beyond everybody who's like getting married these days because we've known each other for so long. And in our first year of marriage, we got this like massive new shock. 
that both of us argue in very different ways. Very different ways. And a lot of this came from the way that we were raised. I was, I was, I was born like in, in my father's Vietnamese, okay? Like full-blown Vietnamese. He was immigrant from Vietnam. Both of my parents were like, are like type A type personalities, very, very loud people. So in my home growing up, when we argued, we argued. <laughs> it was like, it was the kind of thing like, like, Yelling and raising your voice in my home growing up was an absolute norm. Like, like, like learning to like yell and express yourself, even if it was like disrespectful, was like how you expressed anger. It's how we dealt with conflict. There were like class two felonies that were committed in my home <laughs> growing up. Like, <laughs> some of you know the story, I'll tell it. I've, I've said that, I've told this story like three times over the course of seven years of being here. When I was a kid, <laughs> when I was a kid, we, my, my, the, my mom had these nicknames for my sister Heidi and I. She'd call me Lit Match and Heidi Dynamite. <laughs> and she would say like, we were homeschooled when we were growing up through elementary school. So it was like, my mom had to deal with us all the time, all the time. And so we would, we, we would, we, we would fight all the time. But like, you know, like when you're, you know, like there's like the fighting that you have when like mom and dad are in the other room and there's the fighting that you have as siblings when mom and dad are like gone from the house completely. You know what I mean? It's like every level of morality and respect goes with mom and dad. And it's like, it's like as long as you don't die, anything is fair game. Like, that, like that's, that's what it was like growing up in my, so like simple example. Like this is, what, this is what a normal fight would look like over like the TV remote in my house. Where it's like, we'd be downstairs. I'd be trying to watch like Cyber Chase in the afternoon. <laughs> I knew you'd be the only person like Prim who knew what that show is. It's like a show on math. Nobody, PBS kids. Anyway, it's like, come on after Arthur. I'm like, so I, I'd, I'd be watching my show, okay? My sister would come down. She'd take the remote. She'd take the remote. <laughs> and it's like, she changed the channel. And I sit here and I look at her. And, and ladies, listen to me, if you have a brother. The Lord has given, like, it's like unique to the sister sin nature. Okay? With like a, a countenance you have with your brother when you do something that you don't care what he thinks. And, you do, and I would look at her and she'd have this look that's like, like, I know that I did you wrong, but I don't care. I'm your older sister. And so it was like younger brother prerogative. It's like, if I'm not gonna get my way, I'm gonna make your life miserable. <laughs> so I get up and this was like back in the day where like the buttons were big on the front of the TV. And I'd like, da, 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 da. and I changed the channel. And she would like sit there and she would like, she'd look at me, she'd grab the remote. She'd change it back and I'd be sitting down. So then what I do is I just turn the TV off, turn it off, right? And then, and then she'd look at me, eyes getting bigger, and she turned the TV back on. And then what I, I did is like the most logical thing for a brother to do. I stood up, I walked behind the TV, and I unplugged it, right? And like, <laughs> hold on. Okay. So, so, so again, okay, again, this, this is like, no, not, not like normal family. 
normal family at this point, you like turn to each other and you'd be like, stop it. You know, like, and you'd like, you'd like march upstairs, it'd be over. My sister, it was not the case. She, she was like, it was like, you'd see this turn in her face. Like if, if there was ever like a true She-Hulk moment that I've like ever seen, grab the remote, stand up from the couch and straight beaming at my head. Like beaming, and like, it's like something you'd see in the movies, like a duck, hit the wall, shatter, explode. And then I'd do, I'd do what every like logical younger brother would do. I'd just turn around, I'd look and I'd laugh and say, you missed. <laughs> and thus would begin, she'd get up and one of these times she, our, our basement, we had like, we had like ping pong downstairs, pool table downstairs, foosball downstairs. My, my sister, she'd come, she'd start tasting. Like my sister had like nails, you know, like Wolverine classified. And I'd run around, like I'd run around the pool table and I kid you not, I kid you not. Again, I've told this story before. I'm like sitting behind the pool table. She's on the other side of the pool table and she's like trying to go to the right side, like go to the left, you know, and I'm like in that mode. And this is the logic that happens when mom and dad are gone. She'd look at me and she'd look down and she'd pull a pool ball <laughs> out of the pool table. Like, and, and like, like, I'm like sitting here in this moment where I'm watching my life flash before my eyes. And I'm like, Heidi, put it down. <laughs> like, like, put it down. No care, no regard. Grabs it and just begins to huck it. She hugs out. She hugs three pools at, balls at me. Misses all three of them, by the way. All three of them. She reaches into the pocket, finds that it's empty, and I seize my moment of opportunity. Hop over the pool table, sprint upstairs. I close the door, grab the handle, and just hold it closed. Class two felonies growing up, okay? Like, this is how I grew up dealing with conflict. If you're mad, you yell, and you're mean, and then you deal with it, okay? Mariah's upbringing was different. She, she, she was a little bit more of the, when her siblings would get mad at each other, they'd make a couple comments towards one another and then they would just get quiet and not talk about it ever again. And then like three years later, they'd be at like Christmas and then they would like make a passive aggressive comment about that thing that happened three years ago that they're still angry about, but was still never addressed. And the other sibling will go, yeah, and they'll sweep it under the rug again and then three, you know what I mean? Okay, now here's the thing. There is, that, that took way too long to explain. Oftentimes, bear with me, the way we deal with conflict is the way that we perceive God to deal with conflict. So what ends up happening is we think, okay, what God sees as conflict or what we talk about in church often is our sin our brokenness, our transgression. And so how is God going to deal with that? For some of us, we might say, we are seeing a God who is eager to just let us have it. We're seeing a God who's, who's, who's eager to, to, to pour out his anger and be mean, be mean to his children. So what this does is it provokes fear. It provokes fear with our heavenly father. But some of us might think when we, when we live our lives as if, hey, we've got our get out of hell free card, get out of hell, hell, hell free card, right? Like, like I've been saved, grace no longer requires anything of me. We kind of perceive God to like take all of our sin or our brokenness and sweep it under the rug. 
and pretend like it didn't happen. And here's the thing, in order for God to be just and for God to be good, he can't disregard sin. He can't disregard our brokenness. He can't disregard our frailty. So what does he do? Is he goes, look, I'm going, I'm going to bring about forgiveness, but hear me. There is none that's going to just get a pass card. There's going to have to be retribution. I'm going to have to deal. I'm gonna to have to pour out my wrath and my anger towards this sin in some way, shape, or form. And it's not going to be by ignoring it, and it's not going to be by being an abusive, mean father. God gives us a way, which leads me to this final point here in God being unwavering, is that God being unwavering means that he will never relent. Everyone say, never relent. He will never relent on the pursuit of his people. He will never relent on the pursuit of his people. Can I get the worship team to come back up? Here's what I genuinely think. No matter where you might find yourself as a believer tonight, whether it's in the you're afraid of God because you're aware of how broken you are, or honestly, your relationship with God is fairly apathetic because this this faith really doesn't mean a whole lot for your experience. No matter where you find yourself here on the paradigm tonight, this is what I believe our gospel claims. That despite wherever you find yourself in your seat here this evening, God is coming after you. And he's coming after all of you not just the parts of you that you bring here. God is unwavering. He's unchanging. As Victor was just saying in that text that he shared earlier, he does not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. The God who split the Red Sea and let an entire nation walk through on dry ground. The God who heard the cries of Israel and their groaning came up to his ears and he looked upon them and he heard them and he remembered his covenant. The God who provided manna from heaven day by day. The God who who sent 10 plagues upon Egypt And Israel got to watch and behold as this God established that he was, I am. The God who was and is and is to come over all the gods of Egypt. The God who led the people of Israel with the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The God who split the rock open in order that they might have water to drink. This God, In October of 2022 is pursuing you and wants relationship with you. And hear me, his pursuit of you has been unwavered 
You know what I mean by that? He has not stopped and he will not stop. Nothing has hindered him, including you, from his pursuit of you. Nothing has hindered his mercy, his grace, his abounding, steadfast love towards your life. It's unwavered. Unwavered. Nothing has hindered him. And he has given us the ultimate, meaning nothing better. He has given us the ultimate expression and proof of that pursuit, that relentless pursuit. And you know what that proof is? Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. The God who opens the blind eyes. The God who tells demons to flee. The God who raises the dead to life. The God who makes the sick well. The God who takes the lonely and sets them into families. The God who cares for the orphan and the widow. The God who cares for the immigrant. The God who calms the wind and the waves. The God who speaks through a burning bush is pursuing you, is pursuing me. And I need you to hear me. No matter where you find yourself in your seat tonight, whether you're somebody who's a, a professed Christian, like you've, you've given, you've grown up in a Christian home, you've, you've given your life to the Lord, but really hasn't meant anything for you up to this point, and you couldn't care less, and it's done nothing about the way you see your life, or, or you're somebody who's sitting in here tonight, and you've never heard about this God ever before, and you just showed up because the girl is pretty, and she, she's here, or, or if you're here tonight, and you feel like, you know, you're doing well with the Lord, and things are going awesome, doesn't matter. This God is pursuing you. And the question is why? Why would he pursue a bunch of transgressing, iniquity-filled, sin-fractured people, including myself, here in October of 2022? You want to hear like the weird answer to that? Is he delights in it. He delights in taking the old and making it new. He, he delights in taking the broken and making it whole. He delights in taking the dead and making them alive. When we read the book of Exodus, what we can look back and see, brothers and sisters, is that despite where humanity falls short or where humanity is faithless, our God remains faithful. And I get the sense here this evening for myself and for you that we need to be reminded 
that nothing going on in your life is hindering God's pursuit of you. There might be sin and brokenness in your life that is hindering you from experiencing his pursuit of you. But hear me, it doesn't change his pursuit of you. And whenever I come to the end of the book of Exodus, this morning I got up and I read all of the last 20 chapters, 21 through 40, and my goodness, it was so difficult. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading, and I'm reading, I'm like, man, this, this is a lot. But as I, as I continued to read, I sat there and I just went, God, you are good. I don't fully understand you. I don't understand why this is the way you would have gone about that. But what I do know is that despite the fact that I've turned my back on you so many times, even after I gave my life to you, you've continued to come running after me. Your pursuit is unwavering. So here's what I wanted to do tonight. I just wanted to thank him. I wanted to thank him with you that he's this type of God, that, that he's a God who is not eager to pour out his anger, his malice, his frustration on us. What he does wanna pour his anger, his frustration out on is our sin. And that's why we have the cross. We can't understand the weight and the beauty of God's grace until we see the weight of his wrath. His wrath shows us that he is in fact good, that he will not turn a blind eye to our sin. But what that does mean is that he doesn't have to be a God who's angry with us. He's a God who delights in relationship with his people. And what it also means is that we can't continue to live as if we are Lord of our own lives. It means that we get, hear me, we get to live a life that's submitted to the one who created us and who knows the way to life. Are you with me? We get to be shown and taught how to live life the way our creator intended. We get to be transformed, as Paul says, into the image of Jesus. Can you stand with me? We're gonna sing a couple of these songs. And uh, this is what I want you to do. Um, do me a favor. Go ahead and just find a spot in front of the sound booth. Whether you wanna stay where you're sitting, that's fine. If you wanna spread out, that's fine. Just find, find a space where you can mentally be engaged with just you and the Lord. Just find a space. Here's what I want you to do. You know, we're about to talk about this when we, we enter into the book of Colossians, but what Paul asks us to do is he says, look, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, 
but on things above. So what I want you to do as we enter into this time of worship is I want you to meditate on the fact and on the truth that God is pursuing you and he's not relenting in his pursuit of you. That the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the preeminent God wants relationship personally with you. And there is nothing you can do to stop his pursuit of you. I just want you to meditate on that. I want you to think about that. That he actually wants relationship with you. And your proof is the person of Jesus Christ. And here's, here's what I wanna just invite you to do. What I wanna invite us to do is just as you meditate on that, Give thanks. Give thanks that he is that type of God. Now, if you're in here and you're like, I'm wrestling with that, I don't know who this God is. What I would love to invite you to do as we enter into worship is just ask this God to reveal himself to you because he will, he will. So Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you're faithful that you never leave us, you never forsake us. God, that you are unwavering, that you do not change, that you are constant, that you are perfectly just. And that you do not relent on the pursuit of your people. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here and now. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe.